Hey there, this is Pastor John Ware, lead pastor of Lifehouse Newport News, a church that exists to help all people experience life change through Christ. Thank you for joining us today on our podcast. We hope it inspires you and gives you perspective to see how God is moving in your life. Now let's get to today's episode. Thank you, Lord. So look, one of... One of my biggest fears with this series is that we would do it, you know, that we would call it four truths the devil doesn't want you to know about love and relationships, and that you would think because we're doing videos that are kind of like funny, we're kind of doing this whole play on Satan thing, that you would think that we don't take Satan seriously, which is the furthest thing from the truth, because we believe honestly that the, you know, in this world, you have good, evil. Satan is evil. And Satan's job, and Satan's job description is to steal from you, kill you, and to ultimately destroy you. And honestly, what we see in, in, in Scripture is, is, at the, is at the very beginning of the Bible, we actually see in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve are chilling there with God, and Satan doesn't show up until they are in relationship, until there is marriage, until there is unity, Satan doesn't show up, and doesn't it feel many times like Satan doesn't show up until you get someone else involved, until you get in relationship, and then it seems like Satan shows up, but honestly, Satan's whole goal, he, he wants to take you out, he wants to steal from you, kill you, and destroy you, and honestly, what we see, the same way that Satan worked in Genesis 3, the same way we see Satan work then is the same way he works now. Just to kind of, I'll give you a small recap with this series. Truth number one, which was uh, February 2nd, it, it was it's not about you. Truth number two, which we did February 9th, was sex is good. Truth number three, which was last Sunday, was your feelings are fallen. If you, if, if you... It, um, if you were not here any of these three weeks, you can pick these sermons up on the church app or you can go on SoundCloud, iTunes, whatever phone you have and pick them up there. But the fourth truth today that we're going to focus on is this truth. It's not over. It's not over. What you see in Genesis 3, Adam, Eve, they're there chilling with God in the garden, enjoying each other, enjoying God, Satan. He comes on and tells them three specific lies that are the same lies he tells us now in regards to love, sex, dating, and relationships. He says this, the first one, did God really say that? The, the devil ultimately wants, wants you to question what God's best is. He wants you, did God really say that? Like, you know, he said don't eat from the tree, but did he mean that branch? Did he mean that root? I mean, you know, what did God really say? And what he wants you to do is cloud and question and not have clarity in what God said. Secondly, there are no consequences. You won't die. He said, if you get outside of God's standard, man, you good. Yo, just do you, boo-boo. Like, it, it, it's all good. Like, just there's no consequences. And the third lie was God is holding something back from you. And, and what Satan said was, is, is, man, God knows if you eat that fruit, man, like, you're going to be like him. And what he was trying to do is to get them to think that God wasn't good. And that God was holding something back from them. But these are the same lies that Satan told then that Satan tells now. Here's the thing. Genesis chapter 3. This is a little Bible teaching. 
Genesis chapter 3 is one of the most important chapters in the whole Bible. Why? Because it helps us have a framework and explain why the world is the way it is. No matter what worldview you have, no, no matter what religion, dogma, teaching you follow, you have to develop and have a framework for why the world is the way it is. I like this echo. But it's like, sorry, I was like, is that God? Uh, anyway. <laughs> Our sound guy didn't, did, did not show up. And Huber here. Let's give it up for Stephen Huber being our backup sound guy today. We love him. Thanks for him. We're just kind of like, hey, you've run a soundboard once in your life. Okay, he'll cool. Come and run a soundboard today, right? But uh, we love you, Stephen. Anyway, though, look, what you find, though, is that Genesis 3 is one of the most important chapters in the whole Bible. Why? Because it, here's the thing, it gives us a framework for why there is so much selfishness brokenness and hurt in our world why it is because people instinctively follow what they want instead of what god's best is seriously like it doesn't and that is why personally i believe the christian message is the truest message in the whole world because it gives us a framework do you know how i personally know this i got three reasons and i've told you this before they are jackson judah and dallas those are my three sons because i can look at their life I can look at them every day when they get a new toy. I can look at them every day. And, and the, I don't have to teach them to be selfish. It is instinctive. Where I don't have to, okay, Jackson, let's be selfish today. No, it's like I've got to train them to be, to be selfless instead of selfish. And really, and, and really what we see in Genesis 3 is that we are all born. We are all a byproduct of a sinful selfish nature that only wants to be about what we want instead of what our creator God requires of us. And Genesis 3 explains why there's so much hurt and brokenness, not just in our world, but specifically in love, dating, relationships, and sex. I heard one, one theologian say this, Genesis 3 didn't just happen, it happens. Genesis 3 isn't just the story that happened to Adam and Eve. Genesis 3 is the same story that happens to us. God lays out his standard for us. And when we willingly choose the, the opposite, it breaks relationship this way, and it breaks relationship this way, and the byproduct is brokenness and hurt. And what we see here in Genesis 3, Adam, Eve, they go, and they get tempted by, by Satan. And Satan uh, does his thing, and Adam, Eve give in. And right after they give in, God starts to lay out consequences to their choices. And I just want to let you know today, your choices, your sinful choices will have consequences. Scripture is clear. You reap what you sow. In, in, in Galatians 6, it says, Do not be deceived. God will not be mocked. The person who sows to please their sinful flesh from that from that sowing, they will reap eternal damnation. But to those who sow and please the Spirit, they will reap eternal, eternal life. The point is, is this. Your choices have consequences. And what we see here, whenever Adam, Eve, they make a conscious choice to turn their back on God, God lays out consequences. And maybe you know how some of these 
consequences feel. Ladies, pain and childbearing. I've watched my wife have all three of them. I'm like, I'll do, any, I'll work 17 jobs. For the. But also too, it says one of the consequences would be is that, is that your desire will be for your husband. And what that sim- simply means, that word desire there could also be translated lust. In other words, you will lust for God's approval. You will see yourself not as God sees you. That one of your core struggles is that you will struggle with, with self-image. And you'll be tempted to find that in men instead of God. Can't you see it? And I mean, you know, here's the thing. You don't want to tight cast, but at the same time, we can see Genesis 3 speaks a lot into what the, the, the damagedness and brokenness into our culture, ladies. But then it says this here, men, it says you'll have to work the ground for food by the sweat of your brow, it says. You'll have to provide for your family. The ground will be cursed with thorns and thistles. Guys, doesn't it just, like the biggest whatever in your life is trying to make a living and provide. And it's just, it feels like the ground is just cursed. Like every time I try to do a business deal, it fails. Every time I try to, you know, it's just like, it's, 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 it's difficult. And in the midst of these consequences, and then too, when God calls them out, everyone starts blaming everybody. Eve is like, yo, it wasn't my fault. It was that devil. It was the devil. And the man is like, no, nah, it won't me. God, it was the woman you gave me. So then the man started blaming God. He started blaming his wife. Even in the, even in the midst, though, of all this blaming and these consequences happening because of their choices. The truth is this there. Our choices have consequences, but consequences are not the final word. Because there, there is this little verse in Genesis 3.15 that is so easy to pass over. That, that honestly, if you are just kind of speed read through it, you'll actually miss the power and purpose of it. And it's found in Genesis 3.15 where here God is actually dissing out consequences to the devil. And one thing he says here, he says, and I will put in, in oh, Jesus, Stuttering guy trying to say this word. Enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Let me break this down for you. He is saying the offs- an offspring from Eve is going to eventually crush your head, Satan. Now, Here's the thing, in theological terms, this is called proto-evangelium. This is called the proto-evangelium. And let me break this where proto means first. Evangelium means good news. And basically what what theologians call this is the first glimmer of the gospel. Where we see the first prophecy about Jesus in the Bible, where we see in the midst of blaming, in the midst of consequences, God said, 
it's not over. Your failure, Adam and Eve, is not final. I've got a plan. I thought I'd get a little bit more better response out of, out of that. Maybe y'all just need to kind of get this a little more. Because honestly, what we see here is the worst moment of Adam and Eve's life being separated from God and separated from each other because of their own choice and because of their own decision. But what you see here is even in the midst of their own choices, turning their back on God, even in, their, in, in consequences being divvied out, even in the midst of them trying to blame each other, whose fault was it? God went into that moment and said, I have got a plan. Your failure will actually produce the seed for your hope and for your redemption. And what I hope you're getting today is many of you today have failed in your relationships. You have failed in your love life. You have failed in your sex life. You have, you, you have failed, and, I, and welcome to Lifehouse, right? I'm not trying to... I'm not trying to like bash you, but let's just be honest. Like there are so many of you and many of you feel defeated. Many of you feel hopeless. Many of you have actually this thing. Why would God even want me or why would God even want to use me? Because of how defeated, how many times I fail. And the truth is this, that in the same way, in the midst of that failure, God said, Adam and Eve, I know what you've done. There's consequences for, for what you did, but at the same time, it's not over. And I'm here to declare to you today, no matter how many times you have failed, no matter how much you've blamed yourself, no matter what your consequences have been or will be, I'm here to declare to you today, it's not over. In your failure could possibly be the seed for your hope and for your redemption. You might be facing consequences. You might be facing a child outside of wedlock. You might be facing divorce. You might be facing alimony. You might be facing child support. You might be facing unhealthy patterns. But I believe today that what you need to ultimately hear is it's not over. Because God specializes and taking what the enemy, even what you meant for evil, and taking it and making it work for your good and for God's glory if you let him. Because honestly, y'all, do you know what that word Satan means? Like, I don't know if y'all actually like get into what, like, just anyway, I, I'm going to open this up. Anybody here want to take a stab at what the word Satan means? Everyone's like, Google. <laughs> Accuser. The word Satan, devil, it means accuser. So let me break that down for you. That actually means all bark, no bite. The only thing Satan can actually do is accuse you and tell you over and over and over and over who you aren't but he can never touch who you actually are. Now, for some of y'all, that's deep revelation because you've been thinking the devil's just been like doing all, all this. And you know what? The, the devil, he could throw confusion. He can do anything. But even though you see 
the devil didn't lay a hand on Adam and Eve. He only tried to get in their mind and make them question God, lie to them. Here's, here's, here's the truth, and this is what, this is what I want you to, because some of y'all are facing the consequences of your choices. And because of it, you're condemning yourself. And you think, here, here's the thing, don't let your temporary consequences affect your eternal identity. I, th- I, th- I think some of you think be- because you've messed up in the past and you are facing or you have faced the consequences, you view that as God doesn't love you. Which that is the biggest load of something I can't say in church. And that's how passionate I am about this. Because like I, I, I just feel is this, is this that as a child of God, when, when you submit your life to God and you accept what Jesus did in your place for your sin on the cross, that your fundamental identity changes to now you are a child of God. And here's the two key things with that. You are fully known by God, yet fully loved by God. So you're like, oh my God, you know, what if God sees me? He sees it. What if God hears? He hears you. But the beautiful thing is that you are fully known and seen by God, yet at the same time fully loved, which let's just be honest, that's what your soul craves. That's what you crave in relationships. That's what you crave in your marriage, to be fully exposed, flaws, beauty, good, bad, ugly, fully exposed, yet at the same time fully embraced for who you are. And that's why our soul craves it is because you crave it because you were created by a creator that wants to be in relationship with you. But here's the thing. You can't let your temporary consequences, feelings, affect your eternal identity as a son or daughter, child of God. Because here's the thing, y'all. God's love is not affected by your choices. Because here's the, here's, the, here's the thing, y'all. I want to show you this really quick. Gen- Genesis this was after their choice, the consequence, the promise. Even before they left the garden, look what God did. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. You have like, oh, geez, so we gave him some clothes? How cool is that? No, what this is saying, he says, even in the midst of their failures, even in the midst of their turning their back on him, God said, I'm still going to care for you. Adam and Eve's choices wasn't affected by God's love for them. And some of you, I I just feel like today, you feel like God's love is like this fickle, because you're fickle. Because your feelings are fickle, and you struggle with loving people when they do you wrong, and you struggle, and you take your love and project it onto God and think that's the way God's love is, is towards you, which is totally not right. God's love is something you can't stop. No amount of choices you do would ever keep God's love from being real and active and true. Think about what this says, Ephesians 3. This is Paul here praying for a church he planted. He said this, and I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the full measure of all the forms. You know what Paul is praying? I pray you would understand something that you'll never understand. 
thanks, Paul. Thanks for praying the, for something. on But what he's saying here is, doesn't matter how deep the depths you plumb in your finiteness, you will never plumb the depths of God's love for you. But what he's praying for is in this lifetime that you would somehow get to how wide and deep is this love that even surpasses our knowledge. Romans 8, this is Paul talking. Again, he said this, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Some of y'all think God's love stops because of something you do. Some of y'all think God's affections and thoughts towards you change because of your past. So many of you think, like I said, because your love is fickle, you think God's love is fickle. But when Jesus died on the cross, he forever opened the doorway and said, my love is going to flood. And it will flood you despite what you feel or see or sense. God's love isn't affected by your feelings. I love what C.S. Lewis said here. He said this, God always allows us to feel the frailty of human love so we'll appreciate the strength of his. And some of you here, what has actually drawn you to God is the frailty and failing of human relationships. That what has actually pushed you towards the beauty and security and hope of God's love is because of the failure that you have experienced in so many human relationships. So it has actually been though, though, those relationships that you even blame God for that God has used to draw you closer to himself. God's love is not affected. But let me be candid with you. I believe that one of the biggest mistakes that we can make in our culture whenever it comes to what we think about God is that God is just loving. It's, it's true that God is love. His love never ends. But God's ultimate goal for you isn't just to love you. You're like, what? Yeah. God's ultimate goal for you is not to just love you. God, God is not just loving. If you actually look in Scripture and see the word most used to define who God is and what God's like, it is this word. And when you, and when you hear this word, you're going to have a bunch of different thoughts come up because of the way our culture has portrayed this word. So just get yourselves ready. Okay, the word most used to describe God in Scripture is this word, holy. 500 times this word is used to, de to describe God. And I, and, and I know, we, you know you hear that word and you're like, holy roller. It's almost that word holy is almost looked at as being like, like, oh, I don't want to be Holy. I want to be holy. I mean, holy, I mean, you know, holy people are weird people. They're, they like homeschool their kids and like, you know, don't wear makeup and they don't, you know, they don't wear pants. They just wear skirts and the guys churn their own butter and they, you know, it's like, you can just, just think of just like, holy just becomes this like archaic term that we associate with, with uh, those people from Pennsylvania that I can't think about. Right? Amish, Right? But honestly, holy simply means set apart or consecrated. Basically saying it is above. Like, it's not like you. It's different. It's set apart. It's treated differently. 
And what you actually see in scripture is that whenever people encountered God, there's actually a couple people, Isaiah and the apostle John, that actually had visions of God in heaven. And the common thread of these encounters with God is both both of these men, Isaiah and John, both said they saw angelic heavenly creatures at God's throne saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. The theologian R.C. Sproul he said this, he said, only once in sacred scripture is an attribute of God elevated to the third degree. Only once is a characteristic of God mentioned three times in succession. The Bible says that God is holy, holy, holy. Not that he is merely holy or even holy, holy. He is holy, holy, holy. The Bible never says that God is love, love, love. Or mercy, mercy, mercy. Or wrath, wrath, wrath. Or justice, justice, justice. It does say that he is holy, 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 that the whole earth is full of his glory. The purpose of God's love is to draw us in and to open a pathway and a door for us to draw near to him. And as we draw near to him, what actually then begins to happen in us is we start to become like him. First Peter says this here. It says, therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, and then, and then what he does here, he references back to an Old Testament scripture, be holy because I am holy. 1 Peter 2.9 says, but you are a chosen people. And what he's doing here, he's speaking to believers scattered in all these different places. He says, but you, he's saying people that believe in you, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. The purpose of God's love isn't just to make you feel good. The purpose of God's love is to draw you to himself so you can become more like God, which ultimately God is holy. And that's the beautiful thing about Jesus and why the gospel is such good news because there is nothing you could do to make yourself holy. Nothing. Scripture says clearly you can't have enough good works. You can't have enough good words. You can't do enough good. It is simply because Jesus came and lived the life you could not live and died the death you should have died in your place and for your sin and opened up a pathway for you to Take on the holiness that Jesus had. He freely gives you when you put your faith and trust in him. Theologians would, would, would call this imputing, giving to you what you did not earn, the holiness of God. And that's such good news, fam. That is such Good news, because I think in our culture, we just want God to be loving. But what we say by we want God to be loving is that God just approves what I do. And God almost becomes unloving when he doesn't approve of something that we want to do. 
have you encountered this as parents? Can't tell you how many times. Dad, can I play the iPad? Nope. You don't love me! And they immediately associate what they can't do to my love for them. Or, hey, Dad, can I drink Mountain Dew for breakfast? You can never drink Mountain Dew. Ever. You might as well drink acid. Like, if you drink Mountain Dew, it's okay. We, we, we love you. We do have a small group built on building health. So Carrie Jones would love to have you come in there and get you, get you some better habits of what to drink. But here's the, here's the, here's the thing. Like, why, why do we always... Think God isn't love. Was he the point? The point is God isn't just loving. Ultimately, God is loving. God is love. Yes, but at the same time, God is holy, and He calls you to Himself, and He says, "I want you to be holy, just as I am holy." Because as I draw you in, as my love makes a way, you're drawn in to become more like God. I want to actually show you show you this. Right, Jesus was the full representation of God. What we actually see in Hebrews one three, it's, it says. That Jesus was the radiance of God's glory. He, Colossians 1, we actually read that he's the image of the invisible God. So Jesus was fully God, fully man on this earth. The best representation of God in a person was Jesus. That's why it's so important if you are brand new to Christianity or you've never actually read the Gospels. Where you need to start reading in the Bible is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Because Jesus is the clearest description and picture of who God is and what God's like. But what you see is Jesus had this encounter in John chapter 8 that I use a lot. John, John chapter 8, right? Jesus is teaching. And in the middle of his teaching, like a sermon like this here, it says the Pharisees brought in this woman that was caught in the act of adultery. Just imagine the shame and guilt associated with not just doing the act, but being caught in the act. Some of y'all know what it's like to be caught. You've been caught. You have cheated. And you've been caught. But just imagine this woman being caught and then thrown right before the king of kings, lord of lords, best representation of who God is, is thrown right before her. We're going we're gonna to actually read this really quick, and then we're going to do a commentary on it, and then we're going to close. It says, at dawn he appeared again, Jesus, in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And the law of Moses uh, commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down, started to write in the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, Go now and leave your life of sin. And... What, how I think this applies to us is, first off, you are that woman. If you haven't been called or you haven't called, like, we, are, we all, when we come to God, like, get exposed. Whether it's in, I mean, we, because we, of Scripture, we've all sinned and fall short of God's life. We're all exposed. 
But then I think it's really, it's really interesting here. Jesus is the full display of who God is and what God's like, and God is love, and because God is Jesus, Jesus is love, how Jesus handles this. First off, you see Jesus condemning, condemning. You see Jesus condemning, condemning. He, you've got this crowd that's trying to accuse her. This is who you are. You're an adulterer. This is who you are. You, you should be stoned. You should be punished. You should be penalized. You should be, you should be, you should be, you should be. And you have Jesus silencing the condemners. And some of you here today, you need to stop condemning yourself. Like the biggest voice you hear is who you aren't. God, do you know your sexual history? Do you know your sexual past? How many times have you been divorced? How many times did you cheat on your wife? How many times, how many times, how many times? And it's like literally that voice just rings in your head when you have this desire to go and do something for God. Yeah, but do you know what you did? Do you know how many times? You know you, and I believe Jesus today would come to you and he would say, stop it. That condemning voice is not from me. God, Jesus, God, Jesus will, will never try to change you with a condemning voice. Ever. If said Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So stop it. That is not the voice of God. That is the voice of Satan, the accuser himself. But what I love here is Jesus condemned the condemning. But Jesus here also condemns coddling. He says, get the condemning voices out, but go and leave your life of sin. He says, the way you're living, you are forgiven. Stop the condemning, but let that lead to you leaving the life you're currently living. And that's what I believe that some of us here, that's, that's maybe a side we don't like. We like the condemning voice being silenced, but we don't want to hear, but there's got to be change. And we can love the, the stop condemning, but not like the coddling, when real love is not staying in a condemning place, but it's also not being in a place of coddling something that isn't God's best. Real love is both. It's silencing the voices, but also listening to and striving to live in what God's best is and not saying that God will just, because honestly, think of what our, our world says. It says like, hey, you know what? Just, just, it's God loves you. He does love you. But God's ultimate goal isn't to just love you. It's to make you Holy. It's to make you like himself so you can be a representation of him. So God's love opens the door to draw you in so you can start to say, I need to leave that life and walk in the newness and grace and mercy and hope that God gives. What voice do you tend to listen to? Because I sincerely believe today that there are one of two voices that you are prone to listen to. The first one is the condemning voice. The second one is the coddling voice. And I believe that some of y'all today, you need to start saying neither of those are right, but what is right, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Yet at the same time, God, 
God saves me and loves me. Love is not just loving me where I'm at. He loves me enough to keep me in that spot. And he wants to bring you out and bring you into his best. Thank you again for joining us on the LifeHouse Newport News Podcast. If you're ever in the Hampton Roads area, we'd love for you to join us at one of our live worship experiences at 9 a.m. or 10.30 a.m. at the Regal Kiln Creek Movie Theaters. Until then, feel free to check us out at www.theaterchurchnn.com or on any social media platform. Thank you so much, and God bless.